Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetic series, posted December 30th, 2021, titled, The Mike Winger vs. Apologia Resurrection Debate. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. Today, we're going to revisit the debate that you're probably unaware even happened. A debate between myself and popular YouTube apologist Mike Winger that took place on November 1st, 2018. I had planned to post this on the three-year anniversary last month, but the end of the year has been incredibly complicated for me personally, so we'll call this close enough. I was given generous permission to repost here, in a less distracting apologia style, by both of the moderators of the original conversation. Back then, Mike and I were a little more fresh-faced, less experienced on camera, and less refined in our arguments. In 2018, our subscriber counts were approximately the same, as I recall, though Mike's channel has exploded to be four times bigger than mine now. As I rewatch this debate, there are so many things I wish I'd done differently. But I think it's worth preserving as an interesting conversation from which we can all learn. Most of all me. Particularly as I hope to be on camera more in 2022. In that spirit, while I think the conversation is worth watching unedited, there are a few things said that are errors, or are partially correct, or I think could use some contextualization. Again, mostly in what I said. Not as much in what Mike said. As such... I'm going to put some of these retrospective notes on screen visually, so they're on record, but without interrupting the audio or the flow. Sorry, podcast listeners, but you'll miss out on these. I've removed the show preamble and some moderator interjections. Otherwise, this is how the conversation unfolded. As you can imagine, I have many thoughts, and perhaps one day it's worth doing a debate review. But I've said enough for now, and don't want to color your perceptions. So here we go with the Apologia Mike Winger debate, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? Sure, I'm Paul Apologia. As, you, as mentioned, I have a YouTube channel uh, where I spend most of my time. But uh, just as a bit of a background to this conversation, I was a Christian. I was a Mennonite fundamentalist. I uh, went to Bible school. I was a youth minister for a long, long time. Well, youth minister. I worked in youth ministry uh, and um, worship leading for a long, long time. I believed, up until a few years ago, I believed everything that Mike will tell you today. Um, but at one point, I decided that I needed to go look at the Bible uh, without assuming that it's true and, and evaluate my faith from scratch. And that uh, led to a big crisis and led me here. So that's just a little bit of background. So uh, I'm a youth pastor and a worship leader. <laughs> and I've been doing that for, uh, for a very long time. And actually, I went through my own crisis. And I decided I wanted to evaluate if what I believed was true. I'm, I mean, this is a true story. I'm not making this up. 
Um, and one of the things that bolstered and encouraged me so much was the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. And so I'm excited to get to talk about that. I really think there's this great historical case for the risen Jesus. All right. Well, um, first, again, thanks just for having me here. Um, I'll admit I am, I'm still learning this stuff. I'm still in the process of discovering and researching and all that, but I've done a lot of my own private work on it. And so I hope to present something that you'll find interesting and maybe even compelling. Uh, some of you guys out there, a lot, a lot of the audience right now, you're, you're atheists, skeptics, agnostics, um, and you're suspicious of apologists, guys like me. Um, so I just ask you to hear me out. I'm going to try and do something to overcome your suspicion. And my plan is this, uh, in order to overcome your suspicion, I want to use uh, consensus opinions from historians, from uh, a heterogeneous group of historians. In other words, historians from all different worldviews, Christian, non-Christian, that what consensus or over 90% of those historians agree on as they look at the historical record, I'm going to use that data as I present a case for the resurrection of Jesus. And then I'm going to offer, if I have time, uh, evidence for the empty tomb, which will be a majority opinion, even though it's not a consensus. So I'm leaving out, that means I'm leaving out fulfilled prophecy. I'm leaving out, which is one of my favorite topics. I'm leaving out my own testimony, the changed lives that other people say that proves that Jesus is alive. Um, I'm leaving out the authority of the Bible. I'm not saying the Bible is infallible, inerrant. I'm not even assuming that it's historically reliable. Now, I believe those things, but that's not the case I'm presenting at the moment, because I think even with one arm tied behind my back, I can still present a really robust case for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it'll be simple. We're going to argue from just a few facts to the most reasonable explanation of those facts being the resurrection of Christ. Um, but I got to overcome one misconception real quick, and that is that we can't use the Bible in a historical sense. Um, that's a big misconception that seems really common on, on the Twitter feed that went out to prepare people for this show. That was like, oh, you're going to use the Bible. You can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. And I, I get what you mean. Like, I can't use the Bible saying the Bible is God's word to prove that the Bible is God's word, that I need more than that, right? But that's not the question we're asking. We're using the Bible like the way that, for instance, a, a historian looking at, at Muhammad would use the Quran and the Hadith to see, to draw historical data from it. So they're not believing it in like it's an error or infallible. They're just getting historical data from it. Now, what they do is they go, oh, you know, Muhammad really did marry a six-year-old girl named Aisha. Okay, that really happened. We can get that historical data from the text without believing it's inspired. And we're doing that kind of thing here with the Bible. Um, another problem is when people think that the Bible is the Gospels, for instance, are one source. And I think I heard, well, I did hear Paul uh, say this in one of his videos, that the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are only one source. Um but even according to guys like Bart Ehrman, we have Mark, we have then um, Q, we've got the unique content in Matthew. Yeah, he copies some of Mark, but some of that is totally unique. We have the unique content in Luke. He copies some of Mark and him and Matthew have some things that are shared, but some is unique to Luke. And historians look at each of those as independent sources. They're different streams, different traditions. And so they consider all that. Okay, so here's the quick facts. As I try to race through, give you guys a lot to think about. Um, this should be the easy part, right? This is what um, historians agree on over 90%. The vast majority coming from all different stripes agree on these three things. The first one is that Jesus did in fact die by crucifixion. Some of you guys are familiar with this, right? You've heard this before. I'm not going to labor this point because Paul actually agrees with me on this point. He does think that at least if I remember how you said it, you said at least one guy named Jesus died by crucifixion. <laughs> so, so he agrees with me there. Um, e even atheist Gerd Ludemann says that Jesus's death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. 
uh, Jesus seminar leader, J.D. Crossan, who thinks that Christianity is a metaphor and there is no God. Um, he says, there is not the slightest doubt about the fact of Jesus's crucifixion under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. Now, these are not Christians, uh, not, not, not actual biblical Christians in any sense. So that's the first fact. Jesus died by crucifixion. That doesn't give me him being alive from the dead. He's just, he's just dead at that point. So the second fact is this, that very shortly after Jesus's death, the disciples, they had experiences that led them to believe, that's an important word here, believe and proclaim that Jesus had been resurrected and had appeared to them. Um, and I'll just say this fact, I'll summarize it as appearances to the disciples. That'll be the short version of fact number two. So we have lots of sources for this one. Um, there's uh, over nine independent sources. I'll just give you a few. We have uh, Paul's writings coupled with his claims to have met Peter and James to confirm that they also had the same claims. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is going to be of interest for our study. In 1 Corinthians 15, there's a, there's a few verses there where there's <clears throat> what scholars agree, this is the by and large agreement, is a creed, an early church creed. And I think Paul agrees with me on this too, perhaps not. Um, there's an early church creed, and it says this. I'll read it to you, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Uh, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That's verse 3. That, that phrase is a statement that is indicating this is oral tradition formalized. And then he gives the creed that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once, uh, at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And that that phrase there, that that's an early church creed that Paul's saying, I received this from, from other sources, and then I came and I gave it to you in Corinth. Now, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in about 55 AD, but he had visited Corinth years earlier. But he's saying that he delivered this message to them years before he wrote 1 Corinthians. So this backdates it to before that time. Then he's saying that the, uh, the creed itself was something he received that was formalized as a creed before he ever even made it to Corinth. And so um, you can safely date this to within 10 years of the, of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and probably within five years, this creed. Now, does it mean that Jesus rose? No, that's not my point. The point is that from the very beginning of Christianity, we know that the appearances to the disciples, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and his appearance to the disciples was what they were preaching. You see, I'm not saying that it's true yet. I'm just saying we know that that's what they were preaching from the beginning and from likely a Jerusalem source. So John Rogers, historian, he says, this is the sort of data that historians of antiquity drool over. <laughs> they just drool over this stuff. It just goes right back to the source. It's very close to the time that it actually happened. And um, it's a genuine belief. The disciples had a genuine belief. Um, there's other sources I could quote on this, but I'll just... For the sake of time, I want to move forward. I'll quote Paula Fredrickson, who is not a Christian. She's a historian. She says, I know in their own terms, what they saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they say. And then all the historical evidence we have afterwards attest to their conviction that that's what they saw. I'm not saying that they really did see the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw. But I do know that as a historian, they must have seen something. So, even um, non-Christian historians, this is, again, a consensus opinion that there was appearances, apparent appearances, or at least the disciples believed they had seen the risen Jesus, and this accounts for their, for their preaching of the gospel. 
Um, Lycona puts it this way in his book, uh, uh, The Resurrection of Jesus, uh, page 372. He says, this conclusion is granted by a near unanimous, nearly unanimous consensus of modern scholars and may therefore be added to our historical bedrock. In fact, he goes on to say that the appearance to the 12, which is a group appearance, there's three group appearances in the passage here that goes back to our historical bedrock. It says the appearance to the 12 is perhaps the most strongly attested of Jesus's post-resurrection appearances. I mean, we also have it in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And yeah, we do have it in Mark, and we can talk about that in the, in the back and forth talk we do. So the second fact is the appearance to the disciples, and it's not saying Jesus must have appeared. I'm just saying the disciples believed that they saw the risen Jesus. That much we can say historically. Um, they were sincere. And we can talk about the, the, the suffering of martyrdom of the apostles and all that. The, f the third fact that historians agree on is that within a few years after Jesus's death, Paul, Paul, the persecutor of the church, he converted after experiencing what he interpreted as a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to him. In other words, the appearance to Paul. So that's my third fact, that Paul believed that he had an appearance. He converted and became a Christian as a result of that experience. And um, what he thought he saw was Jesus. Um, Habermas himself says, uh, who's, who's the foremost expert on, the, on, on this subject, the, the evidence for the resurrection of Christ, um, he says virtually all scholars recognize Paul's testimony that he had an experience that he believed was an appearance of the risen Jesus. So um, this is, those three facts aren't, aren't really seriously debated among scholars. And, that, and that's me just, I'm saying, I don't want to have to prove every single thing in the world to you. I'll go, what do they already agree with? My statement now is the best explanation of those facts is the actual resurrection of Jesus. That, and, and you know, park your, your, your skepticism for a moment and ask yourself, if the resurrection of Jesus was possible, it would be a good explanation of all those facts, wouldn't it? That Jesus died, that his disciples who ran in fear after his death suddenly say, we saw him risen from the dead, and they're willing to die based upon that claim, that this appearance happened not only to individuals, but also in group settings, and then the conversion of Paul based upon that same data. These are all things that do make sense if you say, okay, Christ did in fact rise from the dead. That would be a, a good way to explain it. And I think that other hypotheses uh, will just fall apart when you try to compare them to this historical data. Now, the one thing I'd like to add is the empty tomb. <laughs> now, the empty tomb does not have uh, a consensus. What it does have is a majority, a growing majority. Habermas gives it a 75% majority. Um, very recently, I think he said it was 73%, he thinks. But he doesn't even include people who think the tomb was empty, but give a natural explanation. He only includes in that percentage those who think the tomb was empty and have no natural explanation. So if someone says, swoon theory, stolen body, he doesn't even include them in that statistic. And so I, I think he, he should, but uh, he doesn't. So here's real quick. Looks like I got about four minutes. So here's a few lines of evidence that support the empty tomb and why I would, I would say we can add this to bolster our case for the resurrection. Um, every single gospel has the empty tomb and it flows with the narrative. There's no, there's no signs in particular of any legendary development in Mark. It flows smoothly with the narrative in its original form that we have in the Gospels. Um, Paul teaches it. It's, in the, it's implied strongly in the creed that I read to you that goes back to Jerusalem to the first just few years of the early church. Um, it has early attestation and multiple attestation. These are important 
historical criteria. It's also enemy attested. In Matthew 28, the polemic that the Jews had against the, the, the Christians was that the, the disciples stole the body of Jesus, which is the implication of this is that, in fact, the tomb was real. The tomb was, in fact, empty. There's other uh, attestation. In Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trypho in the second century, it's still hanging around, this empty tomb uh, theft is still hanging around in Tertullian at the end of the second century. It's still around. They're still fighting against this, this stolen body theory and nobody else challenged the tomb with anything else. No one said there was no tomb or the body was in the tomb. Uh, even Celsus in the second century writing against Christianity, he never challenges the empty tomb. And you would think that they would do this if they could, it would be expected of them. There's no competing traditions. We have the criterion of embarrassment because we have the testimony of the women that they found the tomb. Also, Joseph of Arimathea, a guy who was on the Sanhedrin, he's the guy that actually takes Jesus and puts him in the tomb, which is embarrassing to the disciples and the early church that they were not there. They were fleeing and running, and then Joseph of Arimathea does this. Um, gosh, there's there's more. I, I Okay, I got two minutes and 13 seconds, if, if my clock is right. So let me share a couple things. Um, the empty tomb tradition starts in Jerusalem. It starts in Jerusalem, and it's and it's in the area of Jerusalem. Joseph of Arimathea is from a location about four miles north of Jerusalem. So here we have a well-known member of the Sanhedrin. Everybody knew the guys that were on the Sanhedrin. It's like being on the Supreme Court, you know? And he, they're saying that guy, everybody knew his tomb, which you'd be able to find locally. I mean, if you were making the story up, you'd want to put him further away. Um, so it, it, it's implying that this is more historical, more likely historical. We've even found first century tombs that are like the one described in the Bible. There's three different kinds of tombs. One in particular that we found, it does, uh, some of them, excuse me, they match the style of tomb with a bench and then the, uh, the holes for the bodies to be placed later after they had decayed. So all this stuff works. In fact, only a rich man could afford such a tomb. And the tombs they found were near the garden gate uh, of the temple, um, which it just is interesting because Joseph of Arimathea had a tomb in a garden. So there's a few of the things I'll, uh, I'll yield my last 60 seconds. And I'll just say this. The point is, um, Jesus is, his resurrection is the best explanation of this evidence. I'll leave it to uh, Paul to present an alternate explanation that is not ad hoc. Thank you very much. So thanks again for having me on, guys. Uh, this is a passionate topic of mine uh, for the, exactly the opposite reason. I used to believe this. I, I now no longer think there is. But let's just look at the claim. So did Jesus rise from the dead is obviously a historical um, style thing to prove. Um, pardon me. Um, First, actually, I want to reiterate, I did actually stipulate two things here. I did stipulate that uh, Jesus existed as a person. Um, I know that a lot of my mythicist brethren and sistren will, uh, will not like that necessarily, but I find for this, there's not really a lot of point in talking about uh, that here. I don't feel like the, the case rests on whether or not he's historical, as odd as that sounds. But given that he was historical, if I'm granting that, um, the fact that he died is probably the most mundane thing you could uh, possibly say about any person in history, that they died. So again, it's pretty easy to grant uh, the first point that Mike made here, um, that Jesus existed and that he died. But in terms of history, history isn't like math where we have proof, where we can uh, go through and actually say things that are proved. It's not even quite like science um, in that, you know, in science we look at the predictive power of something to evaluate whether or not it's a, it's a good theory or a good hypothesis. Um, 
in history, what we deal with is the probability whether something happened. You never prove that something for sure happened. It's always probabilities. Um, so within that, we have certainties, uh, levels of certainties as historians describe. And that certainty is proportioned to a number of different factors. First of which would obviously be just the evidence that's on hand. How much evidence do we have and what kind of evidence is it to support uh, the claim that we're looking at? Um, another factor is the conventionality of the claim. So is it uh, something grand or is it something mundane? Mon mundane is going to be a word I use a lot. Um, so, for example, you would need a different type of evidence to say that Abraham Lincoln cut down a cherry tree versus Abraham Lincoln hunted vampires in his spare time. Now, both of those claims have been made in literature, um, but obviously the cutting down a tree is a different claim than hunting vampires, and you'd need a different level of evidence to describe those two things. Um, and then, unfortunately, there's a reality that certainty is also portioned to how much time has passed since the alleged event. So, um, so if you had the same amount of evidence for two different claims, but one claim happened, say, 100 years ago, another happened a thousand years ago, just by the way history works, we're going to be more certain about the one that happened a hundred years ago than a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago. Um, that may not be fair, but that is actually just the way history works. Um, now, I actually anticipated that the phrase uh, scholars, scholarly consensus or scholars agree was going to come up, uh, as it often does. Now, um, scholars there is unfortunately no way to really know what the consensus is. Now, Gary Habermas, whose name came up several times, allegedly has a database where he surveyed uh, thousands of people who have published on the resurrection. Now, those include everyone from historians to New Testament scholars to uh, philosophers to everyone. Um, now, Gary uses this database when he uses his, his talks. Uh, he, he's even referenced it in papers, but unfortunately, he's never shared this data with anyone. So until Gary shares this, there is no way to know what the consensus of scholars say. Um, I would just like everyone to know that when Mike and I are talking about things, uh, I think I trust his scholarship and hopefully you guys will all trust mine to know that when we talk about scholars, um, that there are PhDs on both sides of each of these issues. And when we're bringing things up, there are people who are well-meaning, well-educated, um, and honestly, sincere and tr looking for truth who will agree with either what I'm saying or what they're saying, but we don't know whether it's 51%, 61%, 70%, this number 90%, I'm actually curious to talk about later, you know, where that comes from, if not from Gary. Um, but history ultimately isn't a vote. It actually doesn't matter what 90% uh, of scholars say. History isn't a vote. We're here to talk about what the evidence is today. So um, I will probably also talk about scholarship, um, but just note that that's, that's not the way history works. Now, the resurrection of Jesus, if it happened, I think everyone would agree would be a miracle, that this isn't something that we have recorded history of other people doing, coming back from the dead. So, and I think probably Mike anticipated that what I would say is that by definition, in history, a miracle is actually the least probable explanation for something. So, um, that's just the, the way it works, that natural... God intervening is sort of the the last thing we look at. Now, that is not a method. We're not looking at historical naturalism here. We're not saying that because it's least likely that we say that miracles can't happen. I think it, it's entirely possible uh, that miracles could happen. Um, but unfortunately, when we look at history, 
that's the least likely thing. So if you want to tell us that a miracle happened, or if you want to prove that a miracle happened or convince us that it did, you would need a level of evidence that overcomes the burden that I'm sorry, miracles, that's just the way life is for you. You have to overcome the burden of being the least likely thing that we could think about. So given if there's two things that have equal explanatory power, you have the extraordinary claim, miracle claim, and a mundane claim, a historian, an honest historian, if there's equal explanatory power, would have to say the mundane claim is probably the most probable thing that happens. And that's all history can do, is tell us what's most likely. Now, um, Mike went through a number of facts. I'm glad he didn't go through quite as many as I thought he might. Um, but I'm going to argue that there's really only, granted that I've, I've granted the, the death, so that's fine. Um, I really think there's only one fact that we're discussing here at all, and that is that people said Jesus rose from the dead. If people didn't say that, we wouldn't be here. So ultimately, we're looking at testimonial evidence. Now, if you're a historian and all you have is testimony, what would you prefer? What kind of testimony would you like? Well, you'd obviously like first-hand testimony. First-hand is better than second-hand, third-hand, fourth-hand. You'd also prefer to have contemporary testimony. You'd prefer that uh, the person who's talking about it was a, either there or lived around the same time uh, as what he's talking about, as opposed to someone uh, generations later. You'd prefer to have multiple accounts rather than fewer accounts. Obviously, the more accounts you have, the better attested something is, and we'll talk about that a bit. Um, you'd prefer that your sources were independent. You'd rather have uh, you'd rather have sources that couldn't have corroborated, that weren't going from the, the same experience. Um, You'd like to have, even though you'd like them to be independent, you would prefer if that evidence would corroborate each other. You'd prefer that when multiple people talk about something that they're getting the details the same or at least close to the same on the, on the main points. And lastly, you'd like that testimony to be unbiased. You'd prefer that the person who's giving the testimony doesn't care one way or the other, you know, has no vested interest in what's, what's happening here. You'd, you'd prefer... Obviously, uh, the witness to an accident, you'd prefer it be the bystander on a street rather than one of the drivers. So, um, you know, that's kind of testimony that people would like. Um, so obviously, yeah, I would agree the Bible is not um, one book. It's, it's rightfully so 66 books. And uh, we're speaking, though, specifically about four or five here. The main one that most people get their evidence about the resurrection from is the Gospels. Now... When we evaluate the Gospels in light of the kind of testimony people would like, we start with the fact that they're anonymous. The, we have no idea who wrote the Gospels. We have traditions that came later, but the Gospel writers didn't sign the books. Um, and again, I would appeal to, uh, you know, that's the scholarly consensus. Well, in fact, it's not even the scholarly consensus. You can read the books yourself. They don't name themselves. Also, if you read the book yourselves, you'll notice none of them even claim to be firsthand witnesses. There's no verse in there that's in any of the Gospels that says, I saw this. Um, which is a weird voice to use. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Um, the, the gospel writers didn't, um, aren't first-hand witnesses. They don't claim to be. Um, and are the gospels contemporary? Well, I think even the people who are very aggressive at early dating will put Mark, which is the first gospel, written around 65 AD, which is 35 years, 32 years after the, the uh, crucifixion was supposed to have happened. Well, given the lifespans at that age and time, um, in the first century in, in run Rome, lifespan was around 30 years. Um, so we're talking about a full lifespan of, 
uh, past when the events happened. You're talking about John. You're talking about 95 AD up to 120 AD, depending on how you date it. These are generations after the events. So you know these gospels um, aren't aren't necessarily they, they don't do well against these criteria. Additionally, fun fact: um, the original book of Mark doesn't even have post-resurrection appearances, so I'm, it it doesn't almost doesn't even count for that. Um, again, they're not independent. I think um, Mike agreed with me that you know ninety-seven percent of Mark. So Mark was written first, and Matthew and Luke borrowed heavily. In fact, ninety-seven percent of Mark is duplicated in Matthew. 88% of Mark is duplicated in Luke. And specifically, I know there's Q and there's other sources, but specifically, uh, the post-resurrection appearances seem to be most borrowed from Mark, including almost some of it word for word, um, if you look at the original Greek. And where there are, is differences, they seem to be theological in nature. I better hurry up. Um, and there's also evidence that John used Mark. Uh, so these are not the kind of independent sources you'd want. Um, the other problem is they don't corroborate. Now, I would never say that um, the fact that there's contradictions in the Bible proves or disproves the resurrection of Jesus, but if we're talking about evaluating a source and do they corroborate with each other, um, they, they vary on points that can't really be reconciled. Did Jesus die before or after the Passover? Um, did the women tell anyone about Jesus resurrecting or not? Uh, how did Judas die? Um, where did Peter see resurrected Jesus for the first time? These are all points on which the Gospels do not agree. Now, I don't think that's necessarily evidence, but it does definitely should knock down um, your confidence level in these sources uh, as, as good witnesses when the fact that they can't agree on some of these very basic points. And the truth is, where they differ, it actually seems to, to not be because they're writing history, but because they're writing theology. So, for example, John seems to have moved the time of the death of Jesus so that he could make Jesus be the Passover lamb that most of his book wants to talk about. They were playing very fast and loose with any details they happen to have. These are actually not intended to be historical books. Um, we might look at extra-biblical. I, I noticed that Mike didn't talk about extra-biblical, but if I'm going to briefly address those, um, we actually have no one outside of the, the Gospels who say they saw Jesus alive. Um, we have, at best people who talked about what Christians believed happened. But again, we, we, we don't have any sources outside of these ones, so we're, we're kind of stuck. One person who said that they saw Jesus and gave them a name was Paul. So, but Paul didn't see Jesus. Paul saw a vision. Uh, if you look at the thing in Acts, uh, the companions didn't see what he saw. They didn't hear what he heard. This was after the ascension, so Jesus would have had to have come back. That would have had to have been the second thing. Paul saw a hallucination which is a mundane explanation. And as we're going to talk about, mundane explanations supersede the others. Uh, we'll talk, I think, in our back and forth about the first 15, uh, first Corinthians 15 creed. Um, again, that is really just testimony to what people said happened, as Mike said. They, it's not testimony of what actually did happen. So we're looking at the veracity of this claim. And we look at these witnesses and say, are they telling the truth? Yeah, maybe they're telling the truth. Another option is no, they're not telling the truth. They're actually out and out lying. We obviously know that that's a possibility. The other thing is, could be possible is no, they're mistaken. They, they thought they, they were telling truth, but they weren't. The second of those two, that they're lying or that they're mistaken, are extremely mundane claims. So again, when we're talking about the mundane, that has to be taken into consideration from his, history well ahead of anything that's supernatural. And we, what we don't have, testimony does not lead us to, to, uh, to much 
Anyway, testimony doesn't lead us to conclude something miraculous when we have mundane claims at hand. And I will uh, end there. Great. Um, okay, so tons of stuff, right, from both me and from you. And so then the debate now in my head is like, where do we go from here? So um, let me let me just come back to what I think are the most important issues, which is this. Um, I gave three consent, you know, what I say are consensus facts, and then a fourth one that I that is a majority that I think we have a really solid case yeah, for. Yeah, I would actually compliment. Um, I would compliment you that that those that those first three facts I would generally agree with you. Okay, that was my first okay, question. Is, okay, so do you do you agree so, with those three facts? Well, you gave good wording, so let me just go through the first of them. So obviously, I'm willing to if he if Jesus died, I'm willing to say or Jesus if Jesus existed, he died. Like that's easy to grant. So so we can sort of skip over that the first one. Well, it's more, and it's, even, it's and more even, specific than that because it's important that he died by crucifixion. That's part of what assures us that this wasn't a swoon. This wasn't like a, you know, like he, he didn't get revived a few days later. Sure. And, and you know, swoon theory, I don't know why you keep using that. Um, you know, it's kind of a thing that hasn't been popular for a century. But, um, but yes. I'm no, going to keep it not so, popular. That's, that's, <laughs> that, all right. Sounds good. Uh, no, so I'm with you. So he, he I, I think that we have enough evidence um, from Tacitus and Josephus, for, for my, um, for me willing to say, yeah, he, he died at the hand of Pontius Pilate, that, that probably that happened. So, I, you know, I grant mm -hmm. you that, that that one exists. Okay. Um, you, you phrased the other one I thought well, was that the disciples um, believed that he was resurrected and that, that they believed that they saw appearances. So that's also easy to grant. I, I think okay. that... Um, now, what, the only quibble I would have there is, um, which disciples do you meet? So how many of them do you think? Uh, so I would agree that obviously, um, if you count Paul as one of them, uh, Paul definitely believed he saw it. No, actually, you, that was your third point, Paul. So we'll leave. That him. was the third fact, so yeah, because he wasn't Peter. a disciple. Sure, yeah. So we have, you know, we have Peter who went on to do things that we're well aware of. Um, do you think that, we have great attestation that any of the other 12 um, believe this. So, okay. Uh, first, let me just say this, like this is, this is not a fact that is debated really sure, outside no, no, of no, no, what, the conversation we're, we're having. So are, are you saying that you dispute number two? No, I, I would say, uh, I would say if you said that the 12 disciples believed that he was, a uh, that he I'd say this. I would I would dispute that. But if you're just saying some disciples, so I would grant you probably that um, James and that maybe Jude and that uh, Peter, you know, those are the ones that are well attested. The others, you know, depends on where. So you you say goes. James? I'm not completely. You sure. said James, Jude, and Peter are well attested. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So James and Jude, brothers of Jesus, not original disciples. Those are actually great to add to my case. <laughs> so James and Jude, brothers of Jesus, who did not believe in him while he was, you know, doing his ministry on earth. And they actually razzed right. him and it seems wanted him to get killed. And then, uh, and thought he was crazy according to the gospel accounts. And then later, um, they, they had some kind of appearance. So they kind of are more, like in that category of non-believers who became believers, probably right. as a result of whatever they really thought they saw. talk about the other... So obviously, you know, um, Judas doesn't count because he didn't see resurrected Jesus. Um, mm -hmm. So then you're down to like 10 people that we don't really, I, they don't really have much attestation that they 
that they went around claiming this. And the reason why this is important to me is because, um, you know, you, people talk about do we need mass hallucinations and do we need a giant conspiracy and stuff. And it's like, well, no, it's really just a couple of disciples who we know really well were going out and preaching this stuff. We don't have great ideas of what um, Bartholomew and Matthew and like all those guys were, were out saying. We we have good attestation okay. for Peter. We have good attestation for Paul. Mm -hmm. So so okay, all so, I'm is that. Go ahead. So okay, you say Peter. You say Paul. Um, in the same places where you say we have good attestation for Peter and Paul, First Corinthians fifteen is probably like the chief passage for that for pretty much everybody, right? Um, that is actually the same yep. passage where it says that he also appeared to the twelve. So he appeared to Peter well, sure. and, so, and to the twelve. So uh, that, let's talk about, can, I'm just going to jump, so we can go back to 1 Corinthians 13. I want to say, oh, absolutely, Peter, or Paul believed he saw. I'm, I'm going to give you number three, absolutely, that Paul, okay. about everybody, thinks he saw Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'll fully grant that. Um, but I don't think he actually did. I think he saw a vision. We'll come back. So 1 Corinthians 15 okay. um, is a creed. I would grant you, I think... You know, um, Habermas likes to date it around three. I think it's probably closer to what you said, which is, you know, five to ten. And we get that from um, the approximate date where we think that Paul visited Peter. Where, that's probably what you think, right? That when Paul visited Peter, as described in Galatians, that that's where he I think they figure, yeah, so... Yeah, so Peter's like on his way to, or Paul's on his way to Damascus. And then uh, about three years later, he goes to visit Jerusalem after he gets saved. And we figure by then he has to have received the creed. The, the creed. Um, at least that's the timeline that he gives in Galatians. A timeline which the dating of which doesn't seem like it's anything other than him just accounting, you know, here's, here's where I went and here's what I did. So right. that, would, that would mean so within that creed. Within three years of his and, and I'll grant you that. Um, so within, conversion. within five to ten years, within five to ten years, um, people believed this. Um, but I, you know, again, I, I think it's a rather a mundane claim to say that people believed something that was not necessarily true, or they couldn't actually know whether or not it was true. So let's go through the people who there. So Cephas, that's actually one that I'm. For those who don't know, Cephas is another word for Peter. You would agree with that, right? Another name yeah. for Peter. Yeah. Um, so he appeared to Peter, who is the one person who I think, you know, is either delusional or, or mistaken or lying or whatever. Um, and then to the 12. Now we don't, again, what I was talking about is we don't really have good records of what happened to the 12. So it's very possible that, you know, again, we, I don't know. This is what people believed. Um, and then, and then appeared to the more than 500, which a lot of people talk about, well, this says that it appeared to 500, but we're talking about really, you know, it's very easy for a story to claim that 500 people saw something. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I live in a large city. We have over a million people. But if I said, you know what, last night, um, Rolling Stone, now nah, let me pick something. Uh, there was a big concert right outside of town and 500 of us were there and it was amazing. There was this great concert that 500 of us were there. Um, if you don't believe me, go and talk to some of the people because most of them are alive because it just happened yesterday. How would so you possibly, me... even in the internet age, how would you possibly go and find those 500 people? And if they didn't exist, if I made the whole thing up, how could they possibly stand up and say, well, no, I didn't see the concert. I could find a million people that said they didn't see the concert, but that would still leave this claim that there were 500 that did. Like, it just doesn't seem 
like a great plane. Okay. So, so maybe your hypothesis is that what Paul is doing is he's saying, like Peter, who you say definitely thought he saw Jesus, there was like an appearance mm-hmm. thing going on there, at least in his head. Um, Paul definitely believes he did, but you're saying that the 500 is just a lie. Uh, a lie or a mistake, yeah. Well, uh, okay. Um, so and then now if, some, if I grant you... Be, like, if again, I, me, go ahead, finish. Yeah. Okay, sorry. If, if I grant you the 500 and we just set that off the table and we say, hey, let's focus on the 12. So the appearance to the yeah, 12 sure. is attested in First Corinthians. It's also consistently in uh, all four of the Gospels. And you say it's not in Mark, but it's actually the, it's not narrated in Mark. But at the end of Mark, we have the statement that they're, that Jesus will appear to Peter and the 12 and, and, and the rest of the disciples. That he's going to appear to them. And so there's a group appearance. Now, I think that a historian would look at Mark and say, Mark is writing after the fact. He's alluding to what was already a tradition going around at the time, which was that Jesus had appeared to a group of his disciples, which included the 12. And then we have Mark, Luke, and John that are all consistent. Now, even if you think they're fabricating some of the details, I feel like you've got to at least admit that there was something that happened where 12 guys said that they saw Jesus, or I should say the 12. Well, the 12 is a title for do, those do, particular guys. But that's interesting. So, um, well, first of all, I think, you know, the fact that it's in Mark actually just helps my case in that, you know, the other Gospels borrowed so heavily from Mark, of course they want to finish that. The fact that Mark had that weird abrupt ending, I think you'd agree with me that the ending that is in most Bibles of Mark, you know, isn't the true ending of Mark, right? Like, Mark really, the original manuscripts ended with the women saying they weren't going to say, talk to anyone, like in verse 9, 16, 9. I think that, I think that, Mark doesn't end in a verse, it ends in a, in, a, in a story. And you shouldn't read the last verse and act like that's the ending of Mark. But no, I do think, uh, no, no, at, no, no, at least no. at the moment, I do think that the, the last verses that are in most Bibles in Mark are not original. I think they're constructed from right. Luke and Acts so, and the different, the different uh, passages there. But the ending of Mark doesn't, doesn't really mean that they didn't tell anybody ever. And I think it's, honestly, I think it's a little silly when people say that. Um, and I, we no, can talk about that. The if only you reason like. it's not silly is because the other gospels talk about them immediately turning around and running to find Peter. Like they immediately talk about, yeah. And, and so you have Mark saying, which is, which is what Mark implies. Not to yeah. tell anybody. So, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a but, uh, sorry, I lost track of what we were talking about. So we were talking about whether the 12, uh, whether the, we're just talking about Peter and 12, um, mm-hmm. which is really just a few more, uh, since Judas was dead. Um, we we don't so have got, we don't have stories about the, we don't have stories about the individual twelve though uh, even going out like we don't have um, great stories of them until like the fourth century of what each of them supposedly did afterwards um, you know we don't we don't know for okay, sure no, we, that they we do. were going around we have first century stories of the twelve absolutely yeah we I mean Where? that's what the gospels that's what uh, Okay, so, uh, sorry, yeah, sorry. Matthew, and, uh, Luke, and, and John record stories uh, of the 12. Counting, First right, Corinthians 15 is a story of the 12 from within five years. Um, so well, these, are, these, are, first, these are first century records, and that's why but this the majority, the vast believed. majority. The creed is what, but, but even the vast majority will tell you that that creed that Paul was reciting, Paul couldn't mm-hmm. attest to it. All Paul could do, he, he wasn't there. So all he was doing was repeating mm-hmm. what other people believed. Just like if I okay, was telling but, people, this is what Mike believes, 
it's not like I can attest to it. I'm just, he's just repeating what he was given. But I didn't use it in the sense of saying, therefore it's true, right? We're saying, okay, like a historian looks at the, looks at first Corinthians 15 and they say, what's the historical core that led to this saying? Well, it comes from Jerusalem from within five years of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's a creed, a formalized creed uh, that is going throughout the church that Paul reports to us that we can trace back to that time and place that is saying that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12 and then over 500 at once and to James. And finally, last of all, he appeared to Paul. Now, I, I think that that is strong evidence that the early, 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 early moments after the resurrection, we had a testimony, just testimony I'm saying here of group appearances of Jesus to his disciples as a, not just Peter, but also the group. And if you believe Peter, then it seems like you ought to believe in the group statements as well. Cause they come from the same source. Uh, the, re the reason I believe in Peter is cause I, you know, I, I, I believe that he actually met Paul. Um, and that mm -hmm. that would have been just too weird if, if Peter had admitted, I made this all up. Um, you know, I, 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 I kind of think that probably didn't happen. Um, so you had talked about, or I actually wanted to just, uh, you know, that I might need to have uh, an alternate explanation uh, of what some of these things were. So, and part of the reason why I, I think, you know, you want to narrow down the number of people is because it doesn't have, the Bible doesn't have to be a giant conspiracy of even 12 people. You know, if you look at it, it really could just be a, you know, a few people. One, one Paul, who I believe is mistaken, and it's possible that Peter was also mistaken. So, um, I actually looked up a number of studies on uh, post-bereavement hallucinatory experiences. I, I don't know if you've, PBHE, have you heard of those? So, yeah, um, that's basically, you know, and, and there's a you know, great study in 2015 by Castelnovo. Um, for those, those in the audience, it's basically when someone has a sensory experience that, that frequently happens right after a, a death. It's a bereavement. They see the person who died. Um, and these are people without a history of mental illness. It's just a very common thing um, when people, and the common symptoms are loneliness, low mood, fatigue, anxiety, cognitive dysfunctioning. And about one, according to a 1993 study on this, about one third of the people who've never had history of mental illness, one third of people report hearing and talking to the person that they've talked to. And I think actually even Steve may have experienced this once. Um, so, you know, Again, we're, this is a, that's a very mundane thing that, that you know, there have been millions of reported cases of, of this. Um, you know, it would be a very mundane claim to say that Peter and or a handful of the others um, thought they saw Jesus, thought they talked to him. It, it wouldn't take, it doesn't take the supernatural mm -hmm. to explain why they thought that Jesus was alive. Um, Can I respond to some of that? Please. I, okay, so... <clears throat> I've heard some of this as well, and, and the, the statistics that I read were that about 50% of um, senior adults in particular who are grieving the loss of a loved one will experience some kind of hallucination. And um, only about 7% of, of, of people will actually have a visual hallucination. The majority of them will be auditory, and they're generally very, very brief. And pretty much in none of these, almost none of these circumstances do people go away thinking the person is alive from the dead. They just think they're seeing the, their deceased loved one. They don't, you know, they don't start, a, you know, thinking, oh, they're back. That's not the normal thing. Um, these, by nature, hallucinations cannot be shared. 
Um, and that's why, that's, for those who are following our debate, that's why we're debating over whether there was a group appearance. Because if there was a group appearance of Jesus, that is incredibly strong information that there was a real appearance. Because if I see it and you see it, well, then it's not a hallucination. Um, so it's, it's, group hallucinations just don't actually happen. That, that sort of thing, if it's a group that experiences it, it's because it really was there. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's how you know so, that you're not hallucinating. Um, so group hallucinations, obviously, you know, that has been studied. There have been things where people claim it. But um, I would put forward not group. If, if we want to say that more than Peter just saw this, um, there's another phenomenon Definitely called want to mass that, hysteria. Yeah. Now, mass hysteria is, is a phenomenon where um, groupthink starts to take over. Where one person, where one or more people saying they saw something spreads very rapidly. Now, we know from the way our memories work is that um, there have been lots of psychological studies where, you know, you can have some person, um, Bart Ehrman always cites the one where you're proposing to the Pepsi machine. They, they tell a number of group, they actually have some people propose to a Pepsi machine and they have some people just think about whether they did it and they tell them. And basically most of them end up coming away thinking that they proposed to a Pepsi machine, even if they didn't. Um, there was actually a, a recent case in 2015 in Europe where there was a woman who thought that her that she was being attacked by seven uh, creatures? She she thought maybe they're bears or some kind of creatures. Where they ripped open the roof of her car and and she had to go to the hospital because of because of all these wounds. Um, and this is you know literally two years ago. Well, now this this you can actually now go and interview nurses and doctors who worked with her who actually affirm her story. But her car was impounded and there was nothing wrong with the roof and she didn't have any scratches. But it's just because she implanted this story and it was so fantastical. It got around the hospital and it seemed to get like mass hysteria. So she lied Again, to people and they believed it. But that wouldn't be a group or she, Well, I think she, I, or she thought it happened. Like she may have been like, but, but it doesn't matter. Like mass mm -hmm. hysteria is, all, is again, um, a well-known. So do you think well the disciples experienced phenomenon. mass hysteria? Oh, I think, I don't see, I don't think the actual disciples necessarily were involved in this we're talking about all these other people who 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 didn't and couldn't have been first-hand witnesses who heard the stories um and and mass hysteria all of a sudden you start thinking oh yeah we saw jesus alive like it it, it doesn't okay but okay so the require let me, the let me respond to that that's an actual sure. theory right so the the thing is that doesn't fit the data in my opinion because what we don't have in the new testament is everybody sees Jesus, but rather Jesus for a, for a period of time appeared to a select group of people. And when they share that story with others, those people don't respond by going, oh, I'm seeing him too right now. Right, Paul even says, only, last of all, he appeared those... to me. So there was no one, there we were no more appearances after people. Paul. We don't have testimony from any of those people that, that, we, that Jesus Well, we, we have the historical to. record. Yeah, we, I mean, we have... Paul himself, we have Peter, who says he was Paul. an eyewitness of his glory. Yeah, so I, I think that what I'm trying to say here is, um, uh, the, 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 even though I have a bare-bones case, right, th just three facts that strongly attest to the resurrection of Christ, um, that is agreed to by a consensus, and I can read to you a bunch of list of names that Habermas has provided, over 60 different names of guys, um, including atheists and all this, but, but that, that bare-bones case is, is powerful enough that Paul has to deny the, the consensus of scholarship on the issue because the fact of multiple eyewitness testimony of, you know, that just defeats a hallucination theory, that's pretty powerful stuff. So I think that this is 
very good <laughs> to, to get out but there and you, talk so about. Yeah. But if you, no, but if you take the if you take it aside, like how many people would have had to have hallucinated? And by my theory, only Peter and Paul. Well, and Paul, I think you know we would all agree. I don't. know, Maybe you think he saw a bodily Jesus. I'm not sure if you you think that he did or not. Um, Paul describes what he saw as visions, so it's very easy to explain that what he saw was in his head. Even if God did it, even if God put it in there, that doesn't mean he was physically there. Um, so we're talking about now one person who who either is mistaken, and there's plenty of reasons to explain how he might have been mistaken, or mm -hmm. we're talking about a guy who gave up his fishing business to follow Jesus and was devastated after this all happened, but used to go around for free and preach to people and they would all be great. And, and now he can continue this ministry. Like, again, I'm not saying that's what happened. I, I know you mm -hmm. hate that when people don't stick to a theory, but all it means is all you need to do is if there's a list, as I've discussed, and maybe you disagree, if there's a list of mundane reasons that equally explain what happened, then, you know, then that historically, the mundane solution is going to win, as, as opposed to a miracle, because a miracle requires a lot of evidence to overcome that burden. Would you not agree? Oh, I definitely don't agree. But, but let, me, let me get into why, though. Um, <clears throat> so when you give a list of eight different explanations, none of which you commit to, and you say somehow as a group, they together explain the facts that we're trying to explain, whereas they don't even work together as a group. Um, that to me is just strong evidence that my explanation is a lot more reasonable. Well, we're and, talking about um, one fact. We can, so I've, so Paul, we're talking like he died, whatever, like none mm -hmm. of those, none of these, nothing that I talked about affects Jesus's crucifixion. None of nothing. So, and mm -hmm. then I totally grant you that Paul thinks he saw something. So we're talking about the yeah. middle section and you haven't really shown to me that 12 people saw him because all we have is stories that 12 people saw him. We don't have any of the 12 putting up their hand other than Peter to say, I, I did. So now we're talking about one dude. Mm -hmm. So do <laughs> based on the same reasons why you accept Paul and Peter and James and Jude, you should accept the 12 because it's the same sources. It's the same source material. And, and it's mis accepted by the majority of the scholarship on the issue. No, I actually don't accept the gospels. I accept the reason why I think Paul and Peter did was because of the epistles, not because of, not because of anything that's it's the, in the gospels. I'm talking about the epistles. First, first Corinthians 15. Yeah. Well, no, but first Corinthians 15 is not a claim. It's Paul's just saying, this is what people believed. Like I, I isn't I, saying, I think... <laughs> help me out with this, Paul. If I say to you, um, that, that, that Paul says, you know, here I am, I visited with Peter, I spent 15 days with him and James, and I'm telling you, um, right, that, that Jesus appeared to Peter, he appeared to the 12, like, you accept the Peter one, but not the 12 one, why is that? Well, because Paul didn't meet, Paul didn't meet any of the rest of the 12. Well, he did, he met all of them. Later on, we went back to Jerusalem for the council that we read about in Acts chapter 15. So he did go back. 15 years later, he goes back again. He meets all the disciples, or all the ones that were there in Jerusalem well, anyhow. If, um, right, if you're accepting yeah, so, Acts, which I don't. Well, you used Acts to try to fight against Paul by saying Paul had a vision. You used Acts and the account in Acts of what Paul experienced when he was converted. Uh, sure, but I, you know, I use it 
be only only because you know you guys you you do accept it and even max agrees with i didn't bring it up i wasn't going to use it today but you brought it in so i'm gonna i'm gonna okay. use it then all right <laughs> i feel and uh i feel that you're being inconsistent because you said that we really got peter or, or paul saw a vision and i'll definitely fight you on that and say that paul thought he saw the physical risen jesus and and if we can use acts i can make that even stronger um, but that's one issue and I'd love to talk to you about it, but also you then said, Peter's just one guy, just one, one dude had like this kind of crazy vision. The other guys had sort of mass hysteria and Peter maybe led them in that. No, but I don't you think also said, let me, they ran away. Well, let me finish this point. Go, sorry. Yeah. Let me finish this point if I can. Um, and then I'll totally hear you out. But, um, yep. but then you also said at first, you know, Peter's the only guy, but you also said that you granted James and Jude that they had some sort of vision type experience where they thought they saw Jesus too. So you, you've given me at least three guys. Then later you said there was only one. I don't actually think they saw anything. I, I think they believe, I think they, they professed they saw something, but, uh, and so they, they at least they believed that on. they saw something. Hmm. I don't even know. I, as I, as I said in my opening statement, either they were lying or they think that they saw something and, and mass hysteria would be, would very easily fit into, you know, why Peter could convince other people that Jesus was alive. So does mass hysteria um, usually continue to hold ground in people's lives years down the road while they're being threatened with death? It does when it gets reinforced and uh, you, you brought up, so, okay, we'll go there first. So um, what I know you've talked about, you know, this is good evidence that, you know, that they were threatened with death. Um, where would, what's, what are your sources that any of those people uh, either died as martyrs or mm -hmm. didn't recant, did recant, could have saved their lives if they could have recanted? What are, what are your sources for that? So, um, well, for one, we do have the book of Acts, right? The book of Acts is, is and, and you said that they weren't trying to record history, but Luke actually says in the beginning of Luke and, and then in Acts that he's trying to give a careful account. He says in the beginning of Luke that he's talked to eyewitnesses and that he's gathered their accounts mm. to compare them and have a, a faithful account. I, I see the look on your face. But I could, I'll just read it to you guys. So in Luke chapter one, he says, um, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accom accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So he's received this from eyewitnesses. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. So at least the claim in Luke, and he writes Acts as well, right? The claim is that he's writing a historically accurate account based on eyewitness testimony and his long following of all of these stories. He then in Acts seems to indicate that he's traveling with Paul when he occasionally is talking about we. Um, so, so in Acts, we have the story about um, multiple stories about the persecution, the following of, of Jewish uh, um, persecutors, how they followed Paul, how they threatened Peter, said, don't, don't speak about the resurrection in the name of Jesus anymore. And they just kept going and going. So that's just, that's sure, one but, source. But, okay. But, but that's, you're talking about Peter and Paul again. Uh, and also, and Stephen, who was martyred, Herod, Herod um, is and Stephen, uh, was, Stephen wasn't one of the ten um, or twelve. And yeah, he was better because he was converted as a result of his. Vision. Herod, Herod killed in your mind vision. Herod, Herod, um, Herod killed one person in Acts. Uh, it was James. 
Um, Steven gets killed. We actually have verification for James uh, in, and I watched a video you did where you talked about the death of the apostles and you actually missed some of these earliest sources. You talked about like, like Thomas. Yeah, for some of the apostles, we don't have great sources on their martyrdoms. We do have really good information no. about the persecution that just disciples in general were experiencing. The, uh, in fact, for instance, Paul is taking um, uh, offerings to the church in Jerusalem of several years down the road, 20 years later, because they've been impoverished by the persecution and things that they've been suffering. Um, so like just things like right, that, right, that, that, that go, that's, hey, that's, that's Paul. We have a lot of information about Paul who, you know, wasn't there when Jesus rose. Well, that's about the, the 12 who were in, or at least the ones that were in Jerusalem, where Peter started out, you know, and where they all started out. Um, but in First Clement, which is written about 97 AD, um, he writes about those who suffered unto death. He talks about Peter and Paul and he implies their martyrdom. Um, we also read about it in Polycarp. Polycarp mentions the suffering of Paul and then includes the rest of the apostles as he talks about their suffering. Um, According to Irenaeus and uh, Tertullian, Clement had actually seen the apostles and fellowshiped with them, particularly Peter. So we have sources that are close to them right, that talk about Paul, their Polycarp suffering. Nor... But Polycarp doesn't say the 12, right? He just says the disciples. Polycarp um, says the, the rest of the apostles. So the apostles would refer right, to, which... would refer to the, the, the 12, and it may include guys like Paul, Barnabas, um, you know, Luke, possibly. Right. And why do you know why why do I think that's important? I guess you know you probably you know where I'm. Well, you asked for historical records that confirmed the suffering yeah. of the apostles who who carried right. the testimony and, and that they seen you know, that, that was, and because you use that as as an evidence, right? You use that as an evidence to say, um, because they they would have recanted or they they may have, you know. It just shows that they really meant it, death. you know. It shows that they really so, did believe that they saw Jesus alive after death. They really believed it. But do we know? But do we know that any of that happened to them? Like we just don't have great sources. Well, to, to no, say. we have we have really good sources. Josephus talks about James, how he was, how he was killed, how he was taken up, um, and they they cast him off the temple and they stoned him to death. Um, uh, John likely a. a, a is a reference to Peter's martyrdom in John 21. It talks about Jesus. Jesus is talking to Peter in this passage. Now you may think John made it all up, right? But John is, I, I, if he's if he's making it up, he's making it up based upon Peter's actual crucifixion because of the way Jesus describes what will happen to Peter in the future. Well, but again, oh, I, don't, I don't grant that. In the, in, it, it sounds like the stories that happened to Peter were based on um the stories that, that ha what happened to peter being you know i don't know if you think he was hung upside down and that he was you know or crucified you know the way jesus was and whether jesus actually visited him and berated him or not uh you know in, in was it the gospel yeah i'm just saying in john 21 jesus gives a statement is recorded by john as giving a statement to peter about his death and it says um he's jesus says john 21 18 Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then John interprets it, says this, he said to show him by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So now, you know, right. I, as a Christian, I go, Jesus is actually predicting to Peter how he will die so he can prepare himself for it. Maybe as a non-Christian or as a historian, someone might say, okay, well, Obviously, John knew about the crucifixion of Peter or however Peter died, stretched out, somehow died for his faith. And then he writes it into the text. Either way, 
that's historical evidence for Jesus or for Peter being crucified. Combine that with Acts and the fact that he was warned multiple times, put in prison, beaten, to just stop preaching that Jesus was resurrected. And that means that Peter really meant it. It wasn't just like a psychotic break moment. You know, this was like really convinced along with many others I could, I, that he saw Jesus. And I think I'm, I think you, I think I've granted you kind of that Peter and Paul, you know, the story makes full sense if Peter and Paul, those two guys, believed what they thought they saw. I think, you know, the whole story mm -hmm. still works, even if they're mistaken. Mm -hmm. And I can, I can add to that list James, and I can add to that list John, who in Mark, um, Jesus, again, he's predicting how they'll die, that they will, they will be b uh, baptized with the baptism he's baptized with, they'll drink the cup that he's drinking, and this is speaking of their future demise. Now, you again, you could say Mark fabricated that after the fact, but it means it's after the fact that they actually suffered and died for what they believed. Well, sure, and, but I would also so we have multiple that, eyewitnesses. But James and Mark weren't in I'm a sorry, position Paul, to know whether... James and Mark didn't actually see resurrected Jesus. So um, they were not in... Well, we don't, know what, we don't know what Mark saw. But uh, James and John sure, are the ones we don't I was have, referring to. Right. So, um, you know, and along with that, we actually also have no, so sure, we know how, if we, if we grant how they died, we still don't even know, or do we know, do we have evidence um, that they could have changed their fates if they recanted? Or, you know, how would we know that, how would we know if they did or didn't recant? Do we, do we know that they had this opportunity? Um, I think that I think that it's reasonable, and and this is like you said, historians they work on levels of reasonable things. You know, it's reasonable to believe that they knew after experiencing various imprisonments and attacks from different people being followed and tracked down. Um, you know, that they knew that if they would stop preaching this Jesus stuff, that they'd be fine. It was it was initially primarily Jewish persecution that came upon them. Years down the road, it was primarily Roman persecution that came upon them. And all they had to do was stop preaching this Jesus stuff, um, and it would have ended. So they knew that. I mean, they weren't do dummies. We know that though. <laughs> do, do we? I think that I think that I we. Guess, yeah, I think we know that. I know in a we're reasonable inferring sense. it. Yeah. We're inferring it, uh -huh. but we don't like. We can't add. I guess I was just asking if you had any more evidence to add to the case that 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 we know for so sure I, that this. I, was the thing that happened. I'll reiterate, uh, you know, in Acts, in, uh, in, in, in not only we have the, the, the statements about the disciples being, you know, attacked, beaten, threatened, told, you know, Acts chapter three, he's like, they're like, don't be preaching this Jesus stuff anymore. Uh, when Paul goes out, uh, they stone him. He goes back in to the same city again. These are the stories. Now, you may think they are overblown, but they have a historical core. Even if you don't think the Bible's trustworthy, there's some historical core this is coming from. Luke's not just fabricating stories. The mythicist, I know you're not a mythicist, but the mythicist side of things is just honestly very naive about the history we're looking at. Right. But I guess where my case hinges upon is that I, I totally grant that early Christians probably suffered a lot of, you know, uh, persecution. But we just don't really know that the people... There's no specific evidence that the people who were able to discern whether this was truth or not, we don't have evidence that they are the ones who are being persecuted. Okay, that, okay. So let me let me read people. to you if I can. 
This is from Clement of Rome, okay? Because this is something that we're kind of going back and forth on. Clement of Rome, this is in like about 97 AD, and he writes this about Peter and Paul. He says, because of envy and jealousy, the greatest and most righteous pillars have been persecuted and contended unto death. Let us set the good apostles before our eyes. Peter, who because of unrighteous envy endured not one or two, but many afflictions, and having borne witness, went to the due glorious place. Because of envy and rivalries, steadfast Paul pointed to the prize. Seven times chained, exiled, stoned, having become a preacher both in the East and in the West, we received honor, uh, he received honor fitting for his faith, having taught the righteousness to the whole world, um, unto the boundary unto which the sun sets, having testified in the presence of the leaders. Thus he was freed from the world and went to the holy place. He became a great example of steadfastness. We read about um, Paul's imprisonment in Rome. We read about Jewish uh, assassins, you know, vowing to not eat unless they kill Paul. Um, we, we read about the specific threats from the opponents. We, we have the example of Jesus who was crucified because of his claims. Everything that we, we read about is 100% consistent. Do you have even one source, one source that suggests that, they, that any of this is not true? I'm actually doing a full reaction, Peter and Paul. Like that's, I guess, where that was my question was, do we know about anyone other than Peter and Paul? Do we have good evidence that they... Mm -hmm even went along with this, that they were even telling people that Jesus was alive. Like, you're using that as a point, that the 12 disciples mm -hmm. died for this and believed it to, to the point of being suffered. And I'm saying, other than Peter and Paul, we don't really have any good sources to say that any of those people, you know, suffered. So, okay, um, in Tacitus, we read about how uh, Nero took Christians and put them on crosses and set them on fire and used them as torches. Tacitus was not a Christian, right. by the way. He's not writing something no, to make Christian those, martyrs but, look good. But those people... He actually mocks Christians. Position. Right, but those Christians were the second generation Christians, right? Those were... Not, Nero not, was Caesar when Paul was killed. Uh, understood, but, the, but we don't know that... Again, you, you want to say that Jesus appeared to the 12. That's what we were originally started with. So appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. And I'm saying, of those 12, who are the only people we can verify, like nothing that Nero did is necessarily happened to Bartholomew, necessarily happened to Matthew, necessarily happened to, um, you know, to John. Okay, so, what? All right, I'd love to talk about the empty tomb only because, <laughs> not only because, um, Gary Habermas at in the at the well, I wrote, wrote it down for myself um, at the CES conference in 2017 uh, stopped using the empty tomb. Gary stopped using the empty tomb as one of his basic facts because he couldn't. It did not. No longer considered it to be adequately attested as a fact. Was that something you're aware of? Did you build that into your thing? He doesn't, well, I'm not, I mean, and when I say I'm presenting the empty tomb, I'm doing that on my own. Uh, Habermas doesn't present right. it because his minimal facts case is this is what's a consensus view and the empty tomb is not consensus. However, it is a majority view. And I think that we should still at least consider something if it's a majority view, even in a hotly debated issue where the empty tomb becomes something where it's like, dude, that's solid evidence for Jesus. You can expect that people have worldview issues on, on the topic. So it's nice right. that there's but even the a majority. The empty tomb is only majority when you look at New Testament scholarship scholars, not historical scholars, and that's why Gary had to remove it. It's it's. Do you have a source for believe, that? Uh, just Gary at his uh, at his speech.
I don't think he says that. I mean, I'd like to, I'd, I'd like to hear it and read it. I, I don't think he says that. Okay. Um, I but, think that, I think that's a mistake. Uh, I mean, and, and again, he's the only one who's done this, you know, supposed thing. I actually, no, I, I would back it up with the Bart Ehrman, uh, William Lane Craig debate. Um, you know, Bart actually laid out again, what, what historians do versus uh, New Testament scholars. So I'd point you to that debate as well. Uh, Bart, Bart also, uh, refutes and no surprise probably to you bart doesn't you know accept the, the empty tomb uh, but you talked about the empty yeah. tomb in terms of uh, chronic, uh, the um principle of embarrassment um again it's well known that um women at the time you know were the ones who looked after the body so the, it makes total sense that mark would have not only would Mark have done that because that was the custom of the time, it would have been weird if the apostles lowered themselves and went were the first ones with it too. But also Mark's whole gospel, and you've probably heard me say this before, Mark's whole gospel is actually uh, to say that the outsiders were the ones who recognized who Jesus was and the disciples were the ones that, that didn't. So I don't find the chronicle or the principle of embarrassment to be particularly compelling in general. It doesn't seem to be used by historians outside of the New Testament scholarship. Um, Okay, so you, you two, two claims there that are really big. You made two yep. really big claims there. One is about the nature of Mark, and the other one is about the criterion of, embar criterion of embarrassment or dissimilarity. Um, I looked this up because in one of your videos, you said, let's talk about the criterion itself. You said that only, quote, only theologians use the criterion of embarrassment. Um, but then I found a lecture from Bart Ehrman, of all people, talking about other historical criteria, and he included in it, the criterion of embarrassment or dissimilarity. And I encourage people to go and look it up on your own. Yes, this is legitimate. Basically, it goes if like this. It's not, it's not as... I'll actually grant you that. If I said theologians, I, I'm, I misspoke. But it seems to be only people in the New Testament studies. And it doesn't seem to apply to any other... Um, and I'd love to see examples where the criterion of embarrassment applies outside of New Testament studies. It doesn't seem to be a thing. So it's, it's the criteria, it's this dissimilarity is the concept. And the idea is this, is that when we, when we look at the purpose the author has for writing, and we say, this is a fact that they're admitting because it's just true, they can't get around it, it's just true, they're not doing it because of their interests, then that makes it more likely to be true. And you, you said this in the same video, which I thought was really strange, is you said that only theologians use this. You then said... I believe the disciples really fled after at the crucifixion of Christ. They really ran and hid. And he says, because it was just so well known, they couldn't hide it. So they included it in the story, which is you using the criterion in the same video where you're saying it doesn't exist. Um, I have to wrap my head around your logic there. Um, no, I, I just believe it from human nature, I guess, but you're, Okay, I'll, um, but do you think the criteria of embarrassment applies outside of New Testament studies? Like, have you, are you familiar? This seems to be yeah. something that... I think uh, it's good for evaluating testimony of, again, of any kind. There's lots of reasons why... Okay. Sorry, I, you know, I spoke over you and I didn't, didn't quit. Yeah, the, the second thing you said was about the Gospel of Mark. And you said that in Mark, the theme in Mark is the disciples don't get it, but outsiders do. And that's... That's just mm -hmm. not true. Like he gives them the parables and then he explains it to only them. Um, they're the ones that do get it. It's, it's, it's Peter that is the one who kind of has the inside knowledge on who Jesus is. This is something I've heard that, um, that it's like the women find the tomb to be some sort of poetic theme in Mark. Like if you really study Mark, that's, 
that's just ad hoc. That's just thrown out there. I, I know that you didn't come up with that, but so, but the guys so let me, that you like, study mark, that's not the case. Well, there's a uh, centurion, non right? Yeah. Does the centurion no, ad hoc the means non-evidenced assumption? Yeah. It, that's a non-evidenced assumption. You don't mean after the fact by ad hoc? I mean, I mean a non-evidenced assumption. You, it's. I just made it for this. Okay. I just. This is. This is the. Yeah. Um, um, well, that that's what people people who study the Book of Mark they they agree that that is a theme. Like, and maybe not all the scholars agree, but certainly lots of people look at the book of Mark, Christians look at the book of Mark. And that there's a theme that, that, theme that women, is, and the theme has to be used that, in a specific way outsiders, here. The theme is that women will get, will, will be the witnesses of Jesus. Whereas the disciples themselves who are the ones to be the witnesses of the resurrection, they won't for some reason be the ones to discover the tomb. Well, it just seems like this is made up to well, avoid means, the idea that it's embarrassing. Well, but they, if, if that wasn't know, the case, Mark doesn't even agree. All right. All right. Paul, we have three minutes. Um, um, so go ahead and start okay. wrapping this up, and then we'll be asking uh, questions from, from people that messes us some so, questions that we'll be asking. So. Okay. All right, I'll, I'll just close that. So if, if, if indeed what you said was true, Mark, I would think that Mark would include the disciples actually finding out about it. But Mark ends without the disciples ever finding out. The centurion knows who, what's happening. The women know what's happening. And uh, the women from before are, are the ones who recognize who Jesus is and, and all that stuff happening. Um, okay, this will be the last again, thing I say before look, questions. I guess I'll, I want to okay. respond to the, end, the ending of Mark. Um, at the end of Mark, if you, if you just read more than the very last verse of what we're considering to be the authentic Mark, right? Um, so he says, uh, do not be alarmed. The, the messenger says to them, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And then they say, it says, and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. That phrase said nothing to anyone is used another time in Mark. And it's in Mark 144. And that is used when Jesus heals a leper and he tells him, go to the priests and show yourself to the priests. But on your way there, say nothing to anyone. The idea is that the women on their way to hear, to see the disciples and tell Peter and the disciples, they said nothing to anyone. It was an incredibly dangerous time for those women to open their mouths and say, Jesus is alive again. They were to go straight to the disciples and just tell them. That's the context of Mark. But of course, in the other disciples, their gospels, they do immediately the opposite of that. They go and run and tell Peter. Anyway, um, all I want, so I wanted to just, I would just love to end with, so from my perspective, a miracle happening is the least probable thing that a historian could, could come up with. So again, it's not impossible. There's certainly you could prove that a miracle happened, but you would need a lot of evidence. Uh, what we have so far is we have evidence of one person who admits that he saw visions, and all we need is one other person to think that they saw Jesus, and you have a very mundane claim that people were either mistaken or lying. Two people were mistaken or lying adequately explains everything that we've discussed, all the facts that we've discussed, the three very basic facts. Um, so I don't see that we've seen anything tonight that requires a supernatural event to explain the facts, even if a supernatural event explains it very well, um, there's nothing that requires it. So uh, from my perspective, certainly a resurrection, uh, we don't have enough evidence.
to say the resurrection happened. And that's, that's my end statement, I guess. So my case was to present these sort of three widely accepted facts. I added a fourth that is a majority, you know, believed in fact that just kind of adds a lot more support even to my case. And that the most reasonable explanation is the resurrection of Jesus. Paul kind of went back and forth a little bit. I, I'm not sure how much of the facts he agrees with or doesn't agree with um, or how, but he seems to think the conclusion is likely if it's possible. Okay, yeah, the miracle really explains the evidence, but miracles are impossible. So that's a whole different issue we didn't really discuss. My point here is to say, unless you assume that it's impossible, it is actually the best explanation. Unless you give it such a low probability that, that no evidence would matter, and you have like a kind of vague definition of extraordinary evidence, unless you do that, then you have the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus as the most, that's the most reasonable explanation. Um, that means that unless I have a priori, my worldview tells me Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then I have a really good historical case for the resurrection of Jesus. And if I have an a priori worldview that says that Jesus didn't raise, then the truth is I don't care what the historical evidence is. I'm just going to try to work my way around it because I've already decided that doesn't happen. It didn't happen. It can't happen. Yeah, Mike, I, I really enjoyed that. I, ho I hope I didn't come across as, I, as if I didn't. I love this kind of conversation. No, thank you. Thank you, Paul. I would, if, if we do it again, maybe we can talk about the possibility or impossibility of miracles, since that seems to be a big issue that we didn't really get much into today. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys, for having me. I, I really do appreciate it. And uh, I, hope, I, hope that, uh, I hope that it made a difference for you. 